Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, episode number 66 on Friday, January 25th, 2008. My name is Cliff Slotnick, or the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Wow, it's close today. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is on the West Coast in Hayward, California, teaching an indoor air quality course. Our goals at IAQ Radio are to be interesting, informative, and entertaining. On IAQ Radio, you hear the views and opinions of the hosts and of our guests. You can contact me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz, an interview with Werner Braun, President of Carpet and Rug Institute, the Indoor Environment Connections What's News segments, and perhaps some commentary from our Technical Director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. We'd like to thank today's sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryies Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryies is first in drying solutions. Dry-ease.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. J-O-N-D-O-N. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. And last but not least, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microband.com. In order to contact the show live by phone or text message, simply go to www.talkshoe.com website and follow the directions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions and take requests if you email us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm happy to report we had a correct answer to last week's trivia question. The correct answer was... (laughs) 
Great. Uh, the correct answer was absinthe, and the person who answered it was Mark Brenner from Brenner Environmental. The microband trivia question for Friday, January 25th, 2008 is, who was Wallace Carruthers, and why was he important? Our guest this afternoon is Warner Braun, president of the Carpet and Rug Institute. Warner was, se was previously senior director of international affairs of the Chlorine Chemistry Council of the Chemical Manufacturers Association. Prior to that service, he was manager of environmental strategic issues for chemicals and performance products with the Dow Chemical Company. His duties in 30 years with Dow involved public policy advocacy, issues management, regulatory and governmental affairs management, and health and environmental affairs management, among others. He has served on several United States and global panels, including the Council for Environment Cooperation, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Council of Great Lakes Industry. Awards he's received include the Forest Chemicals Leadership Award from the National Forest Products Association and the Speaker's Award from the American Chemical Society. Mr. Braun earned a BS degree in chemistry from St. Edwards University and has taken graduate courses at Purdue. He is a member of the Society of Toxicology and the International Society for the Study of Xenobiotics, of which he is a charter member. He is an active member of the Rotary Club and serves on the Georgia Institute of Technology External Advisory Board, the Whitfield Healthcare Foundation Board of Trustees, and the Alzheimer's Association Board of Directors. Mr. Braun, his wife Mary, and their two children reside in Dalton, Georgia. He enjoys golf, rock climbing, and heads up his son's scout troop in his spare time. Well, thank you for joining us, Warner. Hey, how are you doing, Cliff? I'm doing good. Can you just give us a little bit of input on what the CRI is? What, you know, what's the mission of the Carpet and Rug Institute? Well, the, uh, the Carpet and Rug Institute is uh, a trade association that represents the carpet industry in the United States, Cliff. And uh, we have three categories of members. Uh, we have manufacturers, and those are all of the mills that manufacture carpet in the United States. And our members represent uh, over 98% of all the carpet produced in, in the States. In addition to that, we have associate manufacturers, and those are all the people that, that provide raw materials to the carpet industry, the face fiber, the backing, the adhesives, etc. And then finally, we have a category of associates, and those are people uh, who and companies that provide goods and services uh, to the industry. Well, thank our you. mission is really, pardon me. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Our, yeah, our mission is is really uh, easy, easily defined, but not that easy to uh, implement. We want to be the source of, of scientific information as it, re it relates to soft floor covering. Now, you know, that, that, is, that is easy to say, but, you know, the science, as you know, with your background, um, is not always easily attained and requires a lot of effort. But going back to 1972, that has been the mission of CRI, is to come forward with the very best science as it relates to carpet. Well, you know, speaking of the science, you know, we, we hear a lot about this term VOCs, volatile organic compounds, and... You know, I wonder, 
were volatile organic compounds ever emitted from carpet? You know, was it ever a problem? And, you know, more importantly, is it a problem today? Well, let, let me put my toxicologist hat on for a second. Clearly, there have been and are volatile organic compounds in carpet. But from a toxicology and risk perspective, even if you go back to uh, 1990 when the whole indoor air issue broke upon the carpet industry, the volatile organic compounds or VOCs in carpet even back then were not a true toxicological risk. There certainly was a perception of risk, and that's why we launched in 1992 our green label program where we test and certify carpets to be low emitting um, with respect to VOCs. Since, since that time, Cliff, we have lowered the amounts of VOCs that we permit in carpet uh, four times. Did we do that because of risk? No, we did it because we were able to. And I, I'm happy to report that we now have uh, programs not only for carpet, but also for, uh, for cushion and, and adhesives as well. You know, I'm wondering whether people could have really differentiated. You know, oftentimes when people would purchase new carpet for their home or purchase new carpet for their business, uh, they're certainly going to have some sort of cushion or underlayment underneath it. There might be some sort of adhesive certainly used, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, seaming and edging and, 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 and so on and so forth. I'm just wondering whether or not some of the blame, uh, you know, for VOCs might have actually come from some of those other compounds. You know, for instance, in cushion or in adhesive, could they contain or emit VOCs as well? Oh, absolutely they do. And as I said, we test and certify low-emitting products in both those categories as well. One of the things that really started uh, this, this whole issue was um, back in, in 1990, we, we did have uh, uh, one particular substance in carpet called 4-phenylcyclohexene, and it has an odor threshold of about a part per billion. And so even at very low levels, uh, you can smell it. And, and certainly people have a, have a, a real fear of, of things that smell chemical. Well, since that time, we have been able to lower the levels of 4-phenylcyclohexene in carpet dramatically. And as an example, in, in 2005, we, we put out over a billion square yards of carpet in, in this industry. And we only got 12 calls to CRI about uh, questions about odor, and only four of those were complaints. So we've come a long way in terms of addressing this misperception, and that's really what it is, that carpet is this huge source of VOCs. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to my brother last weekend, and he uh, mentioned the name of an individual that he knows who uh, actually bought a Bentley automobile, brand-new Bentley. And there apparently was an odor problem in Bentley automobiles. And, I, and not only did this owner have it, but I suspect that several other owners had it. And, you know, it, the, this person complained so much about it that they actually took the vehicle back. So I think that, uh, you know, when people buy new things, I think a lot of times they like the new smell. You know, what, what's funny is, you know, we get calls all the time. Do we make a new car smell? You know, some people really like that and yeah. I, you know i suspect that, that other people don't where is the united states in regard to you know soft 
surfaces compared to, for instance, Europe or, or South America or Asia? Do they make carpets to the same standard that we do? Do they exceed our standard or are they behind our standards? Well, I, I would say in many, many regards, they're, they are behind our standard. Um, if you talk about the area of vault floor ganks, for example, I think we are really helping lead the world uh, to the U.S. standard. We started about a year and a half ago, oh gosh, now almost two years ago, an effort working with, with ISO, the uh, International Standards, Standards Organization, Organization right. yeah, to, to really to create an international standard for VOCs. And we now have consensus and we're going through the final balloting of that. And essentially that program is the CRI Green Label Program. Can you provide some commentary on something called the real-world study? Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, one of the things, you know, we, we, we still get calls about, you know, about DOCs, but infrequently. But the myth that, that carpet is this huge source of DOCs in an indoor airspace has persisted and still persists. But the reality of life is is that, that carpet is actually the ant on the elephant's back when you look <laughs> at the total the total VOCs um, in an indoor airspace. Now, we decided to test that. So we went into a, a school here in Dalton, and we found across the hall from each other a, a carpeted classroom and a non-carpeted classroom. And we went in and we measured the background levels of TVOCs, total or total volatile organic compounds in both classrooms. And not to anyone's surprise here, the levels were exactly the same. We then went in and replaced the carpet in the carpeted classroom with, with a new carpet. And there was a small blip of, in terms of the total VOCs, but within 48 hours, the levels were totally back to background. Now, what's that tell you? Well, what it tells you is, is that, yes, we make a tiny contribution but within 48 hours, it's back to background. And within five days, we are 99% of all of the OCs from carpet are gone, and they're gone forever. And so to, to say that carpet is this continuing source of VOCs just is scientifically incorrect. You know, speaking of scientifically incorrect, what about the effect of carpet on asthma, the effect of carpet on allergy, uh, directives given by physicians to remove carpets, you know, from homes and play areas of children and so on and so forth. Uh, can you talk about, you know, bring us up to date on what's going on there? Yes, I sure can, because it's one of my, uh, one of my favorite urban legends. In fact, uh, just to fortify what you, what you said, Cliff, uh, we do a, a number of market surveys and a number of years ago, we, we surveyed 17,000 asthma and allergy doctors across the United States. And 62% of those doctors, uh, when asked, you know, what can I do to make my house more healthy, recommended uh, ripping out the carpet. We asked those doctors that said that a follow-on question. And the follow-on question was, okay, if you make that recommendation, can you point us to a piece of scientific literature that says that, that the patient will benefit by ripping out carpet? In other words, what do you base this recommendation on? And you know how many pieces of scientific information we got back? 
Probably none. Zero. Right. Zero. Now, what we did is we went out and we started looking at the literature. And the first paper we came across was a study from Sweden where they had decided that carpet was this big um, problem with respect to asthma and allergy, and they started getting rid of it. And it, starting in 1980, and about 10 or 15 years later, they had essentially gotten rid of all of the carpet in, um, in homes in Sweden. in Sweden. Now, what happened during that same 10 to 15 year uh, period with respect to asthma and allergy? Probably a it's spike. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it went up exponentially. Okay. Now, as a toxicologist, when I saw that, I said, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. If there's a causal relationship between carpet and asthma and allergy, you get rid of the carpet, the asthma and allergy ought to be going down. So that's really what got us started into investigating the whole science of the relationship of carpet with asthma and allergy. What's the a reason? I'm sorry, go ahead. We subsequently did a lot of studies where we looked at um, the resuspension potential of, of particles from carpet or hard surface. And as you might expect, might expect the, the asthma and allergy particles, the dust particles, go into the carpet, and they're, they're trapped there. And what, what you find is when you measure the amount of, of, of asthma, asthma, asthma and allergy particles in a space that's carpeted versus one that's not carpeted, you find substantively lower levels in that carpeted room than the non-carpeted. We then found about six different studies where people had actually looked at how do people do, people with asthma and allergy, how do they do in a carpeted room versus a non-carpeted room? And there were, there were six studies, and I'll, I'll tell folks in a moment where they can find those, where they looked at, at people who had carpeted bedrooms, non-carpeted bedrooms, went to carpeted schools, non-carpeted schools, and in, in every single case, the asthma and allergy symptoms were less severe and less pronounced in the carpeted space than they were in the non-carpeted space. So, you know, we have a firm belief that the carpet acts like a filter, just like the filter in your furnace. Now, what do you want to do when you have a filter in your furnace? From time to time, you want to replace that. You want to refresh it. And the same holds true with carpet. If, you know, the carpet acts like a filter, and it truly does trap particles. So then you come along with good cleaning and you refresh the filter-like properties of that carpet. And if you do, you will have a much healthier uh, breathing zone in a carpet room than a non-carpet room. Now, if I might, might just quickly add, because sure. the next thing people will say is, okay, if it's trapped in the carpet, then that carpet's a sink for bad stuff. It is. But we always say, where would you rather have it? In your eyes and your nose and your lungs, or would you rather have it in your carpet? Then finally, mothers will say, well, my kids crawl around on that carpet. That's how they get exposed. So we went to the University of Georgia, and we said, okay, let's do, let's do, do divide the study where we can quantitatively measure the dermal transfer from carpet and from hard surface. And Cliff, this, this will not surprise you. If you put the same amount of an allergen on carpet and on a hard surface, and you put your hand on that hard surface, you're going to get 95 to 100 percent of all that material back. If you put your hand on that carpet, you get three to five percent back because the particles actually settle down 
into the into the face fiber and are not available for dermal transfer on on the top of the surface. Now, circling all the way back to the asthma and allergy doctors and the role of CRI, we then took this information and we packaged it up and we sent it to asthma and allergy doctors across the United States, and we were able to get that recommendation level down to under 50%. So we 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 actually moved the needle with them. But you know, finally we're going to need to do something else to convince those guys. So what we're doing today is we're doing a big clinical study with Emory University, which is one of the, one of the premier teaching universities in teaching hospitals in this country. And Dr. Um, um, I forgot his name, but the head physician down there is putting patients in a chamber where he's putting known amounts of allergen in the carpet chamber, non-carpet chamber, having those patients do um, activities, and he's doing pulmonary function tests on those patients to see where they'll do better. And why are we doing that? Because that's a clinical environment, and doctors are not scientists, they're, they're clinicians. clinicians. So they're going to need to see a clinical study, and we're going we're gonna to give that to them. What about mold and carpet? You know, we have a lot of issues with fungi indoors. Can you, you comment on that? Oh, absolutely. There, there's no question uh, in in the restoration area it is an issue, but let me let me talk to it with respect to the carpet that has not had uh, water damage. With if you take in fact Dr. Mike Berry, who many of your uh, this audience probably sure. know, did a, a very significant study about three years ago at the University of North Carolina, and he took carpet and ceiling tile and wallboard and two-by-four studs, and various other building materials, and put them in a high-humidity environment. And about three days later, he looked at it, and everything in that high-humidity chamber had, had mold on it except for one material, and that was carpet. And the reason for that is is that carpet is not a food source for, for mold. And there's nothing there the mold can eat, so it won't reproduce. So if you keep, and your audience knows this, if you keep carpet clean and dry, you will absolutely not be able to grow mold on it. And if you see in a, in a typical uh, residential or commercial environment, if you see mold on carpet, you have two problems. One, you have, you have uncontrolled moisture in that, in that building. And two, you've got that carpet has gotten dirty and there's other food sources in there that the mold is using. So what you see, and we see it all the time, somebody you know, will report that they have mold on a carpet in the school, and they rip it out, but have they gotten rid of their mold problem? Absolutely not, because they haven't addressed the real problem, which is uncontrolled moisture and dirt. You know, when you say that most people have a disconnect with what carpets are really made out of. You know, like when we think about fiber, a lot of times I think people think cotton and there are all these cotton commercials and, and so on and so forth. And uh, I would suspect that most people that buy a synthetic carpet actually you know, may even go in and, and ask for a brand by name based on television advertising and so on and so forth. Do you think, and I, please don't be demeaned by what I'm going to say, but do you think most people don't realize that they're walking on plastic, you know? I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and what, what they probably don't realize beyond that is that 97% of all the carpet uh, sold in the United States is, is made from polymers. 
hydrocarbons and not from natural products. I think, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, uh, and I wanted to ask you about this. You know, when I was a kid, I was literally allergic to wool. I could not wear clothing that was wool. And at that time, they didn't have polyester. There, there really weren't a lot of options. And I mean, I just, you know, I would absolutely break out. And, you know, this is a situation where you take this natural fiber and people think that everything that natural is really, really good and, and really, really healthy. You know, when in reality, I would suspect that no one's ever been allergic to nylon. And a whole lot of people can be allergic to wool. Well, you know, I, you, I, you're absolutely right, Cliff. I don't know what the numbers would be of people who would have those kind of, of allergies, but let me let me give you an example that, that everyone is familiar with, and it really draws the contrast between uh, uh, plastic materials such as carpet <coughs> and uh, latex. A number of years ago, probably four, five, six years ago, there was, there was a big flap about... Um, the natural antigens that uh, occur in latex, natural latex, and a lot of people are allergic to those antigens. And so that all got translated over to all latex. But when you actually looked at, at latex that was made from, from styrene butadiene, you found that there were no allergies to, to those kinds of latexes because it didn't have the natural antigens in there. But again, you know, it, it's, it's part of the education process that we have to go through, and sometimes the media does not help us in that. Can we, let's, you know, go through some cleaning and maintenance issues, because we have a lot of people that are in the carpet cleaning field, and uh, we have a lot of homeowners that just listen to the prop. Can you tell us a little bit about the seal of approval program? And what I'd really like you to comment on is what, I personally would consider the, the, the best work uh, really done by CRI, and it's really in the area of vacuum cleaner certification. I mean, I just think that that's so important. So many people, I think, used to uh, clean their house with a vacuum cleaner, and they're literally walking right behind it, and, uh, you know, literally, uh, you know, minute particulates just being, you know, ejected in their breathing zone. And uh, what have you done, your organization done to kind of change that? Well, let, let, me, uh, let me tell you why we did it first, and I'll tell you what, what we did. Okay. Um, starting about four years ago, Cliff, we, we started going back and doing market surveys, um, both in the residential side and the various commercial segments. And we were asking people, you know, questions like, what are the, what are the, the biggest complaints you have about carpet? Why, why do you deselect carpet? And across every segment, 84% of the people, either as their first or second mention, said cleaning and maintenance is the biggest problem with carpet. So as we started looking at that, we, we said, okay, well, what could CRI do, given that we're a science-based organization, to help alleviate that, that situation? So one of, the first things, one of the first ones we looked at was, was vacuum cleaners, as you mentioned. And we started a, a certification program which was then called the Green Label Vacuum Testing Program. And in that program, what we did is we, we measured the amount of soil that the, uh, that the vacuum cleaner removed, and 
was did it contain did it contain that soil that dust within the vacuum cleaner as you said spew it back out into the room and then finally we we also test to see if it if it did that if it did the cleaning job without destroying the carpet and what we found was is that you know there were a lot of vacuum cleaners out there one that didn't remove much soil or two would spew a lot of it back into the room and and then thirdly there were vacuum cleaners out there that in 10 passes would put a year's worth of wear on the carpet. So we started, that was our really first effort into this into this, this area. Um, and then just this past month, in fact this month, we're not out of January yet, we introduced a new vacuum cleaner program called the Seal of Approval Green Label Program. And we're excited about it because we're actually partnering with NASA NASA gave us some technology called X-ray fluorescence, which allows us to measure much more precisely, much more accurately, the amount of soil that's being removed by vacuum cleaners. We can also use that, that same technology to measure the efficiencies of extractors, deep cleaning extractors, or deep cleaning systems. So we're, we're doing those three programs currently. We also have a, a spot remover program and let me digress a little bit because I think you'll appreciate this, and it, it's, it spoke volumes to us. When we went out and beta tested our new spot remover program, we bought 24 spot removers, including the, the national brand leaders in, in spot removers. And we found out of those 24, four of them performed as good as water. Four. Four. And so you add, then we, we said, okay, well, now we understand why the homemaker, homemaker thinks that if she cleans her carpet, it's going to be worse after she tries to clean it than, than before. And we found the same thing, the same phenomenon when we looked at in-tank and pre-sprays. But the good news in all of this is that these programs have, in, have improved the performance of not only the cleaning chemicals, but the equipment to the point where we are light years better at removing soil from from carpet today than we were uh, eight years ago. I'll tell you, what, let's go to our technical director. I think he's on the line in Dieter. Hello? Hello, Dieter. How are you? I'm just fine. I'm listening very carefully. Well, I'm sure that you were, and I just wondered, it seems that you and Warner probably have a lot in common with your... Well, I... Uh... My whole professional life, I studied small particles. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, we did um, some studies for the Carpet Institute, but that had something to do with off-gassing rather than particulate. Mm -hmm. And we did that over at the University of Pittsburgh. Eve Allery, Dr. Allery, was the uh, researcher on that one. And this is, good God, that is 20-some years ago. But... Um, yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. In fact, I have an old shop back, <laughs> and it doesn't matter who made that damn thing, uh, who cares, but it, it has a filter in there, and there is a rubber strap on it, and I mean, the seal is good. I, I do it as best as I can as it was designed, and when I throw that thing on, uh, there comes a puff of uh, small particles out. I can see it. So that is not a good idea. No, probably not. Okay. Dieter, kommen Sie aus Deutschland? Ich komme aus Deutschland, jawohl. Ich war in Stuttgart geboren. 
It's Stuttgart. <laughs> yeah. We better switch back to English. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Stuttgart is a good place. You know, Mercedes is there. Uh, Porsche is there. They uh, and they make very they very good food there and there. Amen. Well, thanks to Frau Gordon, who was my high school German teacher, uh, I understood a couple of the words in there. <laughs> All right. Well, what we're going to do, I think, at this point is we're going to bring Glenn on, and we'll do the IEQ Connections report, and then we'll bring everyone back after that. So hang on. Sure. Thank you. news is so factually boring. I get assignments that any could do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Do we have the leader of men on? The leader of men? I guess, yeah. That's good for me. Here I am. Hello. Hey, Glenn, how are you? I'm doing great today, Cliff. Good show. Thank uh, you. Very interesting. I came from Warner Braun. I met Warner several decades ago, and we've kept touch a little bit over the years. He's always a person to bring a lot of insight into which a controversial issue and, a, and an often misunderstood issue as well. Absolutely. What do you got for us today? I got some good things for you today. I'm going to start off with one that wasn't on my agenda until um, it really hit my desk yesterday morning. Uh, a new study has come out. A team of researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, or Berkeley Lab as it's known, have found evidence that the prevalence of building-related symptoms, uh, or sick building symptoms as they're commonly called, increases with increasing outdoor concentrations of the pollutant ozone. Uh, now, that may sound like a no-brainer to you, but uh, this is the first uh, study of its kind. Now, they've also discovered in a uh, related study, and this is uh, going to have some big implications on the indoor air quality world, they've also discovered that the type of air filter that some buildings use in their ventilation systems can also play a role in the prevalence of building-related uh, sicknesses or sick building syndrome. How? This is um, it's really uh, very, very interesting. It's the first epide uh, epidemiological evidence from a field study of a link between ambient ozone levels and building-related symptoms. And it's also the first evidence linking building-related symptoms to a specific filtration technology that's used commonly in large buildings. Let's talk for a minute about the ozone uh, aspect, and then we'll talk for a minute about the filtration aspect. Um, what this study showed was that the prevalence of upper respiratory symptoms in a building increases linearly, linearly can't say that word, linearly. increasing concentration of outdoor ozone. It also shows that the indoor concentrations of formaldehyde uh, and several other uh, uh, VOCs uh, increases with increasing outdoor ozone uh, because of the, the, the chemical reactions between these substances. Now, all of these are known sensory irritants, and formaldehyde, of course, is a known carcinogen. These lab studies suggest that the chemicals may have a larger impact on indoor quality than uh, that's ever been known before. Um, however, until this you know, field study, there's been no direct evidence of a correlation between outdoor ozone and a health condition inside a building. This is something I think that's going to make a lot of waves. It's going to result in a lot more research. Um, and, and, and will have a lot of impact, I think, on the overall green and outdoor environmental issues as well. Now, in a second paper, the same researcher 
researchers report on how different types of building air filters can affect the prevalence of building-related uh, sickness symptoms. And here's what uh, I found really interesting. The team found that the combination of higher outdoor ozone levels and the use of a polyester or other synthetic filter correlates with a statistically significant increase in the prevalence of building-related symptoms compared to other types of air filters. Uh, this type of filter showed a significant association with lower and upper respiratory symptoms, cough, sore eyes, fatigue, and headache. Uh, by contrast, far fewer symptoms were reported in buildings uh, that had high ozone and fiberglass filters or in situations where the buildings used polyester or synthetic filters and the outdoor air had lower ozone concentrations. What this research suggests is that by replacing the polyester synthetic filter, uh, you could have a major positive impact, reducing building-related symptoms prevalence by up to 75% in buildings that have high outdoor ozone concentrations and by up to as much as 39% in areas with low outdoor ozone concentrations. So it's, a, it's very, very significant, and I think it's going to really turn the filtration industry, HVAC filtration industry, on its head in that they're going to be taking a much closer look at how outdoor contaminants are reacting with the, the uh, materials that filters are made of and potentially resulting in the release of irritants uh, to the indoor environment. So that's brand new. That study is coming out in the journal Indoor Air, I believe, next month. Uh, but they put out a preliminary press release on it, something that I think everyone should have their eye on. Absolutely. So what else do I got? Uh, coming back into um, some of the things we're covering in Indoor Environment Connections this month and next, um, the economy. The economy stupid, as they say. <laughs> um, we're watching it. And, and, you know, we're seeing some things happen around here. Um, we're all waiting for our big $1,200 checks to uh, help what, uh, relieve what uh, people are saying might be a recession or what some people say we are smack dab in the middle of. But in any event, we are starting to see the effect on industry. I've been noticing um, some of the smaller firms are starting to, to disappear. Uh, we've seen that within the memberships of several organizations. Uh, last week, one of my staff members was out at the American Society of Home Inspectors annual meeting. They, of course, are taking a terrible beating in that, that market with the home sales being so bad. And um, it shows in their membership and it shows within, um, you know, within everything that they do. I was myself this weekend at the um, ASHRAE Winter Meeting in the AHR Expo, which is the biggest event for the HVAC industry every year. There were 50,000 people there, but I did ask a few people you know, how things go in house sales, and I did get a general opinion from people that things were slower, at least from the contractor base. On the manufacturing side, uh, people were still pretty optimistic and saying things were still pretty positive. The contractors, not so much. So I think that's um, you know, going to be something we're going to be watching throughout the next six to 12 months to see whether some of these stimulus packages that are going into place will have an effect on our industry, will help to boost some of those who are suffering a little bit right now because of the economy. Uh, two more things I wanted to talk to you about. One is politics. I took a little heat last uh, after the last show I was on where uh, we declared that the editor of IE Connections had named Hillary Clinton as his uh, endorsed candidate for her stand on indoor environmental issues. I took some heat because when I was asked about uh, who's the top Republican on IEQ issues, uh, I sort of put them all into the same mix. Uh, we've done a little bit more research, and I want to kind of correct my statements from last week. 
I want to go on record as, as calling John McCain the Republican candidate who is probably most friendly on environmental issues as, as relate to the indoor environment at least. Unlike a number of his Republican candidate, uh, other Republican candidates, he unabashedly touts an environmental plan that he centers on what he calls common sense stewardship. And his campaign materials call such issues as sustainability, clean air and water, a quote, patriotic responsibility. His voting record on these priorities um, shows it as well. He's voted on passage of the EPA's Clean Air Mercury Rule and the Safe Drinking Water Act. He also sponsored the Comprehensive Methamphetamine Control Act. But um, he's been campaigning a lot recently, and so he hasn't uh, been able to vote on some things like the Renewable Fuels Consumer Protection and Energy Efficiency Act, uh, the Energy Act, or for some of the other things that have gone on. But again, that's because I think he's on the campaign trail, not because he doesn't believe in those causes. So that uh, our presidential primer is in our January issue, which uh, is in our readers' hands right now. Uh, I encourage everyone to take a look at that, especially if you're from a state that's got a primary coming up and you want to think about the candidate that's going to best represent you on IAQ issues. Glenn, as that's, always, that's this week. Thanks, man. Very good. Okay, Warner, uh, thanks for staying on. We were discussing, I guess, cleaning and maintenance issues and we were talking about some of these uh, green initiatives and, and certification programs and, and so on and so forth. And uh, I think we've been through the one that dealt with vacuums. I'm just wondering if there's anything else, uh, CRI, any other initiatives they've got that are dealing with cleaning and maintenance that we can talk about. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but before I do, I'd like to uh, just make a quick comment, if I could, um, sure. on, on something that Glenn mentioned. He mentioned the issue of, of formaldehyde. Mm -hmm. And I, it's, again, one of these urban legends, but I, I am astonished how often we see it both in, in print, newspapers, and different places that carpet is a source of, of formaldehyde. I can assure your listeners that that is absolutely categorically incorrect. Formaldehyde has not been used in the manufacture of carpet for the last 25 years. In addition, in our Green Label and Green Label Plus programs for VOCs, we measure for formaldehyde to make sure that, it, that the carpet is not a source of formaldehyde. So I wanted just to make sure everybody hears that because it, it is one of those urban legends that continues to persist. Now, with respect to the Green Label program, and there's a couple of interesting things that, that have happened. Um, we have been out trying to promote the, uh, the green label, or, excuse me, the seal approval program um, in various market segments because, you know, it, it does no good if we have a program but no one's aware of it. And so we've been making the rounds of, uh, of various um, folks, including Hilton, who, by the way, just signed a uh, memorandum of understanding with us that they will use exclusively seal approval products in all their hotels across the United States. We also met with, uh, with Disney, um, because as you know, they have a lot of properties. 
and they are real excited about the seal approval program as well. But they asked us the question about, well, are your are your products also green? And we, we said, you know, we, we don't test for that today, but, you know, we really ought to. So one of the things that we started against just this month is a, a new uh, category of cleaning chemicals called seal approval green. And these are our products that have been tested and certified as green by Green Seal or under the EPA's Designing for the Environment uh, program. So if, if you go to our website, and I said earlier I, I would direct you to this, which is carpet-rug.org, you will find listed there all of the chemicals and all of the equipment that, that pass our program. And then, then separately, you will find a, a category of uh, SOA green as well. And just so everybody knows, again, what the categories are, we have uh, vacuum cleaners, spot removers, in-tank and pre-sprays, extractors, and uh, deep, deep cleaning systems. In addition, there's also a category there, brand new, uh, just been added for a few months, which is uh, seal approval service providers. And these are folks who have uh, signed an agreement with us that they will use exclusively seal approval products in, in, their, in their cleaning and maintenance jobs. So if somebody wants to go to our website, find all that information there at carpet-rug.org. You know, tomorrow I'm going to, uh, I guess, a, a meeting. There will probably be about two or 300 carpet cleaners there, and uh, several of them knew that I was interviewing you today, and I've got a couple of questions that came directly from professional cleaners. I guess question number one from a cleaner is, what carpet manufacturers are requiring the use of IICRC-certified firms versus recommending them based on the seal of approval guidelines. Are there any right. specific manufacturers that require it? Yes. Well, first of all, there's, there's more to the story. And okay. If I, if I might just be a little bit more expansive. <clears throat> um, about a year and a half ago, six mills, all residential mills, uh, announced that they were going to be tying their warranties to CRI seal of approval cleaning chemicals and products, and that those mills were uh, Shaw, Mohawk, Bowu, Taiping, Mannington, no, oh, excuse me, Blue Ridge, and um, Dixie Home. Now, Shaw went one step further. Shaw said that starting in January of this year, they were also going to require IRCRC certified firms. Now, it is my belief that, 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 other, that other mills will probably follow their lead, but um, since that's really not uh, part of CRI's responsibility with respect to warranties, we'll just have to see who else, in addition to Shaw, does that. Now, there are others, by the way, other mills, who uh, recommend IRCRC certified firms and or technicians. And again, you can go to our website at carpet-rug.org, and you'll find there what each mill either requires or recommends with respect to service providers. I guess the next question is, that if I, I'm not sure where they got this information, whether it's from your website, uh, et cetera. 
but according to this cleaner, there are only a few approved or you know, small number approved CL of approval service providers signed up for each state. And is there a lack of industry concern by carpet manufacturers who insist on consumers using such a service provider? Uh, absolutely not. And it's, it's not a matter of, of, um, of support for, for that program. In fact, we the board just recently approved a, a new member category, NCRI, for seal approval uh, service providers. It, it's only a matter of the fact that we just started this program. And I, I, my, it's my belief, uh, Glenn, that is, excuse me, uh, Cliff, as the information with respect to um, what the mills are requiring in their warranties, as that word spreads, I believe there'll be a lot more people that will join the seal of approval service providers. And by the way, IICRC and other and other organizations that the mills either require or recommend as uh, as doing their warranty work. You know, we're in, in speaking of warranties, this is something that I've always had a personal issue with, and I'm not sure that you're aware of it. I want to bring it to your attention. Um, you know, oftentimes people that do professional carpet cleaning need to respond to a water damage emergency. And this can be clean water, it can be not so clean water, it can be uh, recent, uh, or it can be this water loss could have occurred a, a couple times in the past. And one of the things that's common among carpet manufacturer warranties on, on their product is that the warranty is voided when certain products, certain types of products, are utilized on these carpets. So essentially the carpet cleaner has to make a choice. And I think he makes the choice. And what the choice is, is he's afraid of void the warranty on the carpet, and I believe he sacrifices or puts at potential risk the health and welfare of the homeowner or property owner by not treating the carpet with an appropriate product. So I think they're more concerned about the warranty. Uh, can you comment on that? Well, only only peripherally, uh, Cliff, because as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, there are legal reasons why CRI has to keep keep an arm's length um, posture with respect to mill warranties. Okay. But I can certainly understand what, what the issue is. And, you know, one of the things that I can do is communicate this to the manufacturers and, and see what their reaction is. I can't personally make anything happen, but I, I certainly can be a conduit of the issue to them to see what whether they're willing to address it. I appreciate that very much. Can you... Uh, I understand that CRI recently wrote a check for $100,000 or somewhere thereabouts to an organization called CIRI, the Cleaning in, in Industry Research Institute. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what they're trying to research? Well, um, we, we actually have a, a number of initiatives that, that we're very, very interested in. And one of the things that we, we try very hard to do is is make sure that the research that we that we you know use is credible i mentioned earlier that that we you know have gone to the university of georgia and had them do research for it for us we we have gone to the university of north carolina we've gone to georgia tech and and uh, uh, st louis university and on and on and on 
and right now we're, we're we have a number of projects underway with respect to uh, with with Siri with respect to, to generating more information on cleaning, more information on on resuspension, all in an effort to get the very best science that we we can, so that we can actually go out to the public, give them the very best information they, they, that's available, so they can make informed purchase decisions about what kind of flooring is most appropriate for them. Can you comment on the use of, um, or, or tell me, on the use of carpet in healthcare environments? Is it increasing or is it decreasing? Um, you know, any issues in healthcare environment in terms of you know cleaning and maintaining that carpet? Um, well, I, I, we could do a, we could do another half hour on that, but let me let me touch it. How about two minutes? <laughs> okay. Um, first of all, again, that that's one of the uh, one of the areas that's been fairly stable in the commercial sec, sec, sector for for a number of years, um, and I think you know there there are a number of myths associated with uh, with um, especially bacteria and viruses in a, in a healthcare facility. But all the same things we said about particulates also applies to bacteria and viruses. It's when those materials get into the carpet, they are very, very hard to resuspend. And if you do a good job of cleaning those those that soft floor covering that carpet, you again have refreshed the, the filter like properties of that carpet. In addition to that, there there are a number of commercial sectors, healthcare being one of those where they they use antimicrobials to make sure that if if they have a, a significant um, um, contamination issue that they they run the best chance that 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 material will be killed in in the carpet so you know there's a lot going on there in fact we're working with one of the largest uh, cleaning and maintenance companies in the United States they do about 50 hospitals across the United States to um, try to get get a, a memorandum of understanding with them that they'll exclusively use seal of approval products because it, it's in their enlightened best interest and that of their of their customer and for a number of, of reasons not not only do you refresh the filter like properties of carpet but the carpet's going to look better in service it's going to last longer and it won't go to the landfill prematurely and increase its environmental landfill. And finally, it's going to save you money. We have been working with um, a guy here in uh, in Dalton who is he, he, he names himself the troubleshooter of the industry. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to go out and document a number of horror stories, uh, both in the commercial sector and in the residential sector, where because of, of poor maintenance, a carpet that had a design life of 10 years had to be pulled out in, in, in four years. Now, that's dollars and cents out of your pocket, and it's also bad for the environment because, it, like I said, it increases the environmental footprint of carpet. And while we're on that, you know, this industry has reduced its environmental footprint for, for carpet in manufacture by 46% in the last 15 years. So we want that carpet to last its design life so it doesn't go into landfills. I've got a uh, message text in from a listener, and I'm not sure whether uh, you feel comfortable answering this, and you know you can either you know give it a shot or not. The question is, do stain protection treatments emit formaldehyde? I I personally don't know the answer to that, but 
The answer is categorically no. Okay, perfect. All right. Because I, I suspect what some are fluorocarbons, and I guess the others, you know, would be uh, would be silicones. And uh, I, I thank you came out from the listener, so uh, that's that that's good. Uh, is there a growing interest in what I would cons or what I would call antimicrobial carpet? You know, carpets that uh, are even more unfriendly to microorganisms. And we know plastic's pretty unfriendly, but is, 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 does there seem to be a growing interest there? Well, I, I would say that the answer, the, the bottom line answer is no. Okay. Um, there is a continuing level of interest in some commercial applications, healthcare being being one of those. But we we have, as an industry, looked at whether antimicrobials are 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 really needed in in more in more traditional kinds of applications, like in in, in the home, for example. Mm -hmm. And what we have found, and I think we've talked about a lot of this, is if you keep that carpet clean and dry. You will not you will not need an antimicrobial in a residential environment. In addition, if you have a biological spill, if you go in there and, and you treat that spill with the appropriate spot remover and the appropriate extractors, you can get you can get that 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 contamination under under control very very quickly. So uh, the bottom line is it, there's there's interest in it in some sectors. Uh, people talk about it, but it's not an area that has seen a lot of growth um, in any sector. Well, you know, I want to. I was thinking about this the other day, and we've talked about antimicrobials, and we understand that they kill microorganisms or repel them or mitigate their growth in, in one way or another. Uh, there, there seems to be growing use of what we call bio-based bio products or biologically-based products, and our company, among others, are you know, doing a lot of research and have products in that area. And we're playing around with what, I, what, we're consider, or what we call a pro-microbial concept. And what this would would be to be able to take the carpeting, and instead of using an antimicrobial product and, and putting that on based on health concerns or safety concerns or those sorts of things, put on what would be a benign organism. Let's say organisms that were edible, organisms that you know could be in, in yogurt and would be considered beneficial. You know, you look on television, you see all these yogurts and cheeses and all these things that, you know, probiotics are, are really, really big. And I'm just wondering what your idea is on whether or not you think that the opposite of an antimicrobial concept might be viable, which is essentially a promicrobial concept where essentially carpet could be uh, inoculated with a small quantity of a beneficial organism which could potentially out-compete uh, bad ones. What do you think about that? Well, I, I guess I have to tell you I have not thought about it until you, you raised the question. I, I have a, a, a couple of thoughts, and these are just top-of-head thoughts, Cliff. But one of the one of the things, one of the, and it, it applies here, I think, as well as it does to the to the area of more traditional antimicrobials. I mean, there's a whole con the whole chemophobia that's out there, and there are a lot of people who would not look kindly upon adding something to the carpet. Let, for example, I mean, pesticides in schools, um, and I know that that Dieter will agree with this. There there are certainly beneficial applications to pesticides in schools or antimicrobials, and, and as we said, in some environments. 
but you hear it all the time. Uh, there, there are groups out there that want to get rid of every antimicrobial in schools or every pesticide in schools because they, they have a belief that it's not good for the kids. So one of the biggest things you'd, I think, have to un- overcome, not only with antimicrobials, but also with, with probiocides, uh, would, would be that, that fear factor. And again, it, I think my sense of it is, is that it would be an enormous educational challenge. And, uh, you know, I guess one, one of the, uh, I got a text in from, a, uh, from one of our listeners that, you know, they, they agree that chemophobia does exist, but uh, they also uh, agree that, uh, you know, some people are legitimately made ill or sickened by chemicals, so uh, there is reason for legitimate concern not for a phobia or for paranoia, and I, I think I would agree with that, and I think everyone else would as well. I'll tell you what, we're kind of running short on time, so we probably will move into our roundup, and uh, we'll get our intro music, and we'll get all our guests back on, and g- give everybody the opportunity. Move them out, hit them up, hit them up, move out, hit them up, raw hide. Cut them out, ride them in, ride them in, cut them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw Okay, it's time for our roundup. I guess uh, Wingman's going to open up the lines here and unmute everybody, and uh, now everyone has a chance to uh, to talk. So, Glenn, you can go first. Sure. Uh, a lot of a lot of discussion takes place about uh, carpet in schools, and I know from speaking to many people who are managers of independent school districts, uh, their their first gut reaction is, "Well, just rip the stuff out and go with hard flooring." Uh, but then I also know from looking at a lot of studies, especially from out of some of the Scandinavian countries, where um, kids take their shoes off on the way in the door to school, and they have uh, 25-foot uh, walk-off uh, uh, mats uh, to collect anything as, as people come in, that there are ways that they can really reduce the amount of uh, debris and so forth brought into schools. Has CRI done any type of research or studies into these particular school issues with respect to walk-off mats or the benefits that could come from just simply children taking off their schools the way it's done in Europe on the, on the way into the school? Yeah, there, there's a lot of, of work that's been done on, in that area, and, and certainly there's, there's no question that, that walk-off mats are, are highly beneficial. In fact, there are you know, any number of products out there that, that do that. With, with respect to the broader issue, uh, Glenn, one of the things that we have not talked about are all of the beneficial uh, features of, of carpet in the school environment. Let's, let's just talk for a second about the issue of slip and fall. The um, American uh, Insurance, let's see, what's, what is the initial? Anyway, the American Institute of uh, Insurance Companies has statistics where they've, they've looked at the, that the incidence of slip fall, just the incidence of it, and you're 10 times less likely to slip and fall on a, on a carpet as, as opposed to a hard surface. In addition to that, you're, you're seven times less likely to be severely injured, significantly injured on a carpet surface if you do fall as opposed to a non-carpet surface. Now, that, that's a big issue in schools. 
as it is in, in uh, elderly environments, if you have old people, in, uh, elderly people in your home or in a nursing home environment, assisted living environment, big deal. In addition to that, there's the whole issue of, of, of noise and noise management. Again, there are studies out there that, that have shown that in conference rooms, for example, in school environments, that only three out of four spoken words are really clearly understood in a non-carpet environment where, so, where um, the noise and the feedback and the reverberations are not, not managed. That, that's huge in, a, um, in a, a school environment. And then finally, you know, noise detracts from the ability of the teacher to teach. And then, and then the third benefit is ergonomics. And anybody in, who's ever walked around uh, on a hard surface, like at a show or worked on a hard surface all day, knows the ergonomic benefits of walking on a soft floor covering. So there are lots and lots of good reasons why you want to have a carpet in school. Well, thank you very much. I have one other question for you, which uh, relates to carpet installation and standards for installation contractors. I know from personal experience that uh, you can buy the finest carpet in the world, but if they hand that uh, piece of textile over to an inferior installer who's using uh, inferior equipment, especially if it's a glue-down job, say, in a commercial building, uh, there can be a world of trouble. I actually had to kick a installation contractor out of my building not too long ago because of the um, uh, the type of glue that he was uh, proposing to use to, to put down this commercial-grade carpet. Are there standards for installation, and what is CRI doing with its members to make sure that you know the product itself is not just safe, but that it's installed safely using safe products? You you are absolutely right, uh, Glenn. This is a huge issue. And until recently, we really didn't know how to address it as, a, as an industry. <clears throat> but we have, we have a game plan now to address that. We've had, for a number of years, um, uh, two standards, one called CRI 104 and the other one 105. And those are industry installation standards. But what we're going to do now, and we've already started this process, we're going to work with the American National Standards Institute to create a national carpet installation standard. Now, why is that important? Well, if we, if we can create this standard, and I know we can, then it, it creates a paradigm where if a mill, on a mill-by-mill -mill basis, decided that they wanted to tie their warranties to proper installation, now they have the mechanism to do it. And, and, and secondly, once you have this standard, then all the existing uh, organizations out there that are, that, are, that are training installers today will all be training them to the same national standard. Now, this won't happen overnight. We think it will probably take three or four years to get this all done and in place. But you are absolutely right. It's an issue, and we need to address it. And I think we have a good game plan to do it, Glenn. That sounds great. Thank you. Dieter, anything, any comments from you today? Oh, certainly. Uh, I, just the, the same point, the same direction. I mean, if you buy a car and it says on your warranty, if you tinker around with the car and uh, uh, install aftermarket gadgets, your warranty is gone. Uh, everybody accept that. We have a precedent for that. So I can understand that. If, 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 if a good carpet is installed incorrectly, yeah, that's, that's tough. Uh, the other one we mentioned it was, you know, good old Mother Nature's uh, products like silk and wool and cotton and so on. Well, uh, 
if, if you burn them, for that matter, you know, nasty things are coming off. And we thought for the longest time that asbestos, Mother Nature's own uh, product, a uh, very inert material would do absolutely nothing to anybody. And we mentioned latex. That's Mother Nature. In fact, I was in Vietnam and, and in Cambodia. I saw the latex uh, trees over there being bled and collected. Uh, lead is, I think, also made by Mother Nature, and poison ivy and poison oak, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> and arsenic so, as well. <laughs> just because it's a, 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 a natural product doesn't necessarily make it good. The other thing is, and I made a question mark there. Uh, uh, Glenn mentioned the ozone studies. Now, I do believe if there is uh, ozone in the air that somebody who is asthmatic will react. But I think Ozone is also really, uh, associated, particularly in the California area, with other air pollutants. So they may have only measured ozone as a tracer, so to speak, and uh, a lot of other things may have been in the air at the same time. And I'm well, I did research. I'm well aware of the fact how expensive and how uh, time-consuming it is to even study two components, not to mention 20 or 30, which are certainly to be found in any air pollution sample anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world for that matter. All right. Well, thanks to our sponsors. Indoor. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry-Ease products providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry-Ease is first in drying solutions. Dry-EAZ.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Links to IAQ Radio are available at iaqtraining.com and unsmoke.com webpages. If you're interested in American Indoor Air Quality Council certified training or customized training programs, please visit the iaqtraining.com website or contact joe.us at iaqtraining.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wiles, to the wingman, Chris Boisel, to our guest today, Warner Braun, but most importantly, to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.